Right, it makes you want to grab your partner, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be with you. Hey, welcome to FCC. We're glad that you are here. Uh, all summer long, we've been looking at, through the lens of the book of Acts, how the early church transformed their world through a radical devotion to Jesus and generosity and hospitality and inclusivity, and as a result, their world was not the same as it was when they first stepped into it. And my prayer, our prayer as a leadership, is that through the summer, your heart was stirred and your imagination was ignited that you might see Jesus, our living King. You might see he is still carrying out his mission today. And you might see that he has a plan to include you in that mission to make this world the kind of place that he created it to be by his glory, for his glory. And, you know, not surprisingly, Jesus continues to accomplish his mission today the same way, much the same way. And he did as he did 2,000 years ago and since. You know, we have literature in which Roman leaders and historians wrote about the ways that the early church transformed their empire in ways that they described the Christians living with such a reckless abandon for God and neighbor. And one of those historians was a leader by the name of Julian the Apostate, who in the fourth century wrote a letter to his officials where he described the way that these Christians were subverting the empire, not with a sword, but with love and kindness of, and generosity. And Julian was so perplexed that he tried to come up with, with a way to counter the influence they were having, and here's what he wrote in his letter. He said, we pay special attention to this point, and by this means effect a cure for the sickness of Christianity. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, he's referring to the Christian priests or leaders because in a Roman world, when you did not bow your knee to Caesar as king, you were referred to as an atheist or pagan because you were bowing your knee to Jesus as king. And so he said, uh, the pagan priests, I think the impious Galileans, the Christians, observed the fact that there were poor and there were hungry and there were destitute and they devoted themselves to philanthropy, Okay. So Warren Buffett gets it 2,000 years later, philanthropy, okay? But it started with the early Christians who gave their lives for the good of their neighbors. Now, there's something going on with Julian. He sees the impact of the early Christians, and so he decides we're going to counter their influence, or writes an edict to his officials whereby he demands that they begin distributing food to the poor. And they begin building hostels for the homeless, and what he never realized is that even though he was demanding that his own people outlove the nasty Christians, he didn't realize that you can't manipulate the human heart to generosity. You can't manipulate someone to love their neighbor and be hospitable toward them. You can demand it, but you can't change their heart to where they wake up on a Monday morning and decide that that's the way they're going to live. And for that reason, his plan failed. Around the middle of the third century, when a plague wiped out upwards of one-tenth of Rome's population, another leader, the Bishop of Alexandria, wrote a pastoral letter to his members encouraging them to nurse the sick and admonishing those, affirming those who had already done so and even given their lives. He said, most of our brothers showed abounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. 
heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Here's what the bishop's saying, he's saying that when you would go care for your neighbor who was ill with the plague, though you might cure him or her, oftentimes Christians would take that illness upon themselves and they would die in their place. This is how they changed the world. You see, historically, Christianity has never changed the world by building impressive buildings or through infrastructure or architecture. Christianity has never changed the world by asking people to come off the streets into a location to have their lives encounter Jesus. Rather, historically speaking, and since the day that the first Christians went in out into their streets, Christianity has transformed the world by leaving the gathering place, by going into neighborhoods, by going into cities and workplaces, and living with such a reckless devotion to their King Jesus, their lives literally up into the places in which they live. And so that people look on and they look at your life and my life by the grace of God when we live, if we live this way, and they say of you, who is this person? Who are they? Why does she live like this? Why does he give like this? Why are they hospitable? Like, why do they love their neighborhood like this? And in doing so, live such curious lives that it opens the door for people to question the way that you live, why you do. A few years ago, I was at a conference and I had an opportunity to spend time listening to Michael Frost, who's a great church leader and author. He is one of the leading voices in what it means for the church to join Jesus on mission today in the world in which we live. He wrote a book, as Matt already mentioned, or will mention in a moment, I think he mentioned it, called Surprise the World. Uh, we want to make those available to you. But in this moment, when he spent time with some church leaders, he taught a message out of Colossians chapter 4. And when he did, he contradicted many of the deeply held beliefs I had had for years about what it means to live with a loyalty to Jesus and the way that I approach and live for the good of and love the neighbors around me. And it really has changed the way that I've approached life since. So in many ways, what I'm going to share with you in a moment, I owe to Frost. He taught after Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, and as we move into this message, I want to share with you that text and both some of the thoughts that he had, but I've kind of gone beyond those a little bit, but if you've got your Bibles, go with me to Colossians chapter 4, because I believe here the Apostle Paul gives us both encouragement and a pattern whereby you and I can join Jesus on his mission today. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 4. Excuse me, chapter 4, verses 2. I'll begin reading through, through verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes this. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. He says, pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about this mysterious plan concerning Christ. He says, that is why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. You ask the question, how will I see my neighborhood? 
How will we see our community, our city transformed by the goodness and beauty of Jesus? Paul gives two specific ways in Colossians chapter 4 if you're taking notes. The first I've already read, I'll mention the other here in a moment. Paul says, number one, the first way we will see our world transformed by Christ is, number one, when we pray that God will give us many opportunities to speak about the good news of Jesus. Now, I'll clarify this. Here and throughout his letters, and we'll see Peter in a moment, say often that there are some people within the church that are especially gifted as evangelists to proclaim the gospel in the local church and around the world. We might refer to them as missionaries. Notice here in Colossians 4, Paul says, pray for me boldly and clearly to proclaim the gospel, and he does not say, I'll be praying for you the same. Instead, he recognizes that within the local church, there are gifted evangelists who are called by God to proclaim this is the work they're called to do, the gospel, his beauty in Jesus, his beauty and goodness, Jesus is, so that other people might be drawn to him, their hearts softened and made receptive to make a a choice to bow their knee to Jesus as king. And our responsibility, those of us who gather week in and week out who are not called to be evangelists, our responsibility to the evangelists is to pray for them, that God would make them effective, that their word would go out clearly and compellingly, that it would land on fertile hearts, and God, by his grace, would add more to the local church, the body of Christ. Now, this might run contrary to what you certainly, to what I grew up believing was that everyone's called to be an evangelist. Perhaps that's what you've believed. But Paul doesn't say that, nor does Peter. If you go in Peter's gospel, well, I'll get around to that in a moment. Peter would say the same, that you and I are called, and I'll come around to this in a moment, to pray for, but to come alongside those who are gifted to proclaim the gospel. Now, go on in verses 5 and 6. Paul's going to say some are gifted, But for those who aren't called to be an evangelist, we have a unique role. Look with me at verse 5. Live wisely, he writes, among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. You let your conversation be seasoned with salt, one translation says, or gracious and attractive, so that you will have the right response for everyone. Now, if you're taking notes, write this down. Some are called to be evangelists. Others, the majority of us here today, are called to live our lives with such curiosity, live our lives with such uniqueness, such distinctiveness, that when people look at us, they ask why we live the way that we do. And Paul says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone when they ask you why you live the way that you do. Peter says the same thing in his letter, first letter, chapter 3, verse 15. He says, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. You see what he's saying? He's saying, as you live out your loyalty to Jesus as king in your home, your workplace, with your finances, your neighborhood, your marriage, with your children, your ambitions, your dreams, your vacations, your leisure, everything that you do as Jesus is Christ of your life, Lord of your life, as people look on, they will see that there's a distinctiveness to your life and they'll ask you why. And when that occurs, God opens the door for you to explain why you 
live the way that you do. Here's what Paul and Peter, and I suppose Mary who came down the road, Paul and Peter say um, to you, Paul and Peter say, live in such questionable ways that when people look at your life, it opens the door for you to explain the way that you live and why you live that way. Here's what they're saying. When you live in curious ways, unexpected ways, unexplainable ways, people will notice. They'll notice. Some years ago, Beth and I took our family to New York City. We met some of our other family there and uh, we toured the city, tried to get in as much as we could in a day. We were down at the Twin Towers Memorial site. We were uptown. We went to Times Square. Beth and I had been to Times Square probably a number of times, I would assume, and um, we had never taken our children there, though. And it's amazing. You walk through and there's sights and sounds and It's a wonderful stop until we came around a corner and we saw a man who's well-known in New York City and well-known around the world famously as the naked cowboy, okay? He's questionable, all right? Different kind of questionable, but he's questionable nonetheless. And here I am with my four oldest kids. Um, Lydia was born, but, you know, she was in a carriage and beyond taking notice. And so I've got my four kids, and I have to explain to them why grown-up men dress in underwear and play guitars. Like that. i got to come up with an explanation, okay? (laughs) But they take notice, because when you live in questionable ways, people are going to take notice, okay? I had no explanation, okay? So I just turned them, and we walked through, okay? (laughs) Times squared. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the left. Why, Dad? They all look to the left, okay? If you don't want them to look to the left, say, don't look to the right, and they'll look to the left, okay? Backwards. Listen, if, if you live in questionable ways, not that questionable, a different kind of questionable, if you live in questionable ways, people will take notice, and they'll want to know why. That's why the naked cowboy has crowds around him every day. Play a song. Never seen a guy do this, Okay? in the same way, you live your life in such a way that's so radically different than the people around you. You live your life in such a way that's so radically different in the way that you're hospitable and generous to others. You go into your office tomorrow morning and you listen to your coworkers and you ask them questions and you encourage and become a person who, sure, move up in your career, but don't do it to the detriment of others while you trample on those beneath you. But you do it to carry out your giftedness for the good of your organization and the glory of Jesus. And as you do so with honor and dignity, people will begin to take notice that you're a person, a young man, a young woman of integrity, and they'll wonder why. You love your neighborhood and keep it clean for the glory of Jesus and for the good of those around you. And it will evoke curiosity. On the other hand, if you and I live like every other middle-class suburban family or couple or individual, like everyone else around us, and we spend our money the same way people spend their money, and we buy all the same houses that people purchase, and we drive the level of cars that everyone else has, if we take the same vacations, all of them, that everyone else takes, spend our money on all the same leisure that they do if we clock in on Monday and out on Friday to spend Saturday and Sunday watching TV, okay? If that's the rhythm and rhyme of your life, no one is going to look at us, you and me, and say, wow, why do they live the way they do? Why? Because there's nothing curious or questionable about us. 
There must be something more questionable about your life and my life than the fact that we go to church on the weekends. That's not shocking to anyone. There must be something more curious about our lives than that we attend groups or small groups with other believers. No one is looking at that and saying, why do you live the way that you do? No one is. You and I, if Jesus is our king, must begin to live in a way that responds to his kingship, that evokes in our lives a different rhythm and rhyme of living. We love our spouses and we lead our homes and we take our vacations, certainly, and we work hard at our jobs and we enjoy our communities, but with a different motivation and a different set of values for the good of one another, for the good of those around us and the glory of Jesus. You see, when we look at the lives of the early Christ followers, they transformed the Roman Empire by infiltrating every nook and cranny of society and living wholly for Jesus. They loved their enemies. They loved their punk bosses. They forgave their persecutors, the people who offended them. Men, in a culture, Roman Greco culture, for where every man had three wives, a concubine for intimacy, a mistress to make him look good in public, and a woman to be his friend. Jesus called men to love one woman, one wife, to give his heart to one, to treat her with dignity and honor, to esteem her as you would a younger sister, but to love and make her beautiful, Ephesians 5, as Christ makes the church beautiful. Paul commanded slave owners to love their slaves. He commanded slaves to obey their slave owners at times when men and women were treated brutally. And in the same way, he would say to us today, love your bosses, regardless of how they treat you. Honor them, regardless of how they speak of you, until God calls you elsewhere. And in doing so, find your place where he's called you, but live a curious life, a, a questionable life in such a way that opens doors for you to give a rationale for why you live the way that you do. And when you live this way, people will look at your life and they'll say, who are you? Who are you? Now, the last few moments, what I want to do is I want to give you on the one hand, the motivation to live this way. And on the other hand, a practical step to begin moving forward. So if you're taking notes, I wanna give you two things. Number one, you ask the question, well, how do I live a questionable life? Where do I start? I wanna give you the motivation for that. If you've got your Bibles, go to the book of Titus, chapter two. In the book of Titus, Paul encourages new believers to apply their gospel, the gospel to their relationships. So to older women, he says, don't slander others or drink too much. Love and train younger women to love their husbands and children. This is the context in which he wrote. To the young men, he said, live wisely, self-controlled lives. When every other young man in Roman society was living a sexually promiscuous life, Paul says, no, 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 you love your wives and treat every other woman in the empire as a sister. 
Paul was basically saying as Roman and Greek citizens, where your lives once mirrored Roman and Greek culture, now you belong to the kingdom of God, therefore live according to the norms and values of this kingdom. And then listen, Titus chapter two, verse 10. I want you to see this. Notice he says, in living this way, you will make the teaching about God our savior. What word does he use there? What word? Attractive, attractive. You know what he's saying? He's saying as you live this way, as you live in the culture in which God places you, but you don't adopt the values of that culture, but instead live out the norms and values of the kingdom of Jesus, the way in which you live will make the gospel of Jesus attractive. It will beautify it. And people will be drawn to it. Then Paul continues, verse 11, and here's the motivation for doing it. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. Verse 14, he, Jesus, gave his life to free us from every kind of sin and to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to what? Good deeds. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, you want to know how to live a questionable life? You want to know why a motivation for living this way? Let your heart be captivated by the gospel. Jesus came, Paul says, to reveal the grace of God, to die the death we deserve to die. When we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us and made us friends. When we were guilty, Jesus gave his life, was condemned to call us innocent. When we were tied up by sin, our lives eroding from the inside out, Jesus rescued us made us clean and gave us a new identity and future. When you and I had no desire for God, Jesus Christ made us desirable. When there wasn't anything in you that wanted to draw near, Jesus drew near to you by his grace. The gospel says that we didn't come looking for God. God came looking for us. And now he calls us to go looking for those who he loves the same. And so today, your motivation for living a questionable life is the gospel, the beauty of what Jesus has already done for you. He came for you. Therefore, go for others. Love in remarkable ways. Be hospitable and warm. Let your life be attractive to others in the way that you serve and give to them. Don't be fundamental. Be warm and inviting. Don't be exclusive. Be inclusive and draw in. Don't draw lines between your neighbor based upon uh, appearances or political beliefs or stances ways of living. Instead, lower barriers, invite them in and find a place by which through solidarity you can identify with their story and theirs with yours. And let your life become questionable in the way you show compassion and act kindly and serve and give to those around you. To the degree that the gospel goes to work in your life, the gospel will go to work out of your life. To the degree that the beauty of Jesus is melting your heart, it will evoke from your heart a new way and kinds of living. Therefore, if today you or I are not living questionable lives, if today you recognize, ah, ah, my life has become a mirror of culture much more than it is a mirror of the kingdom of my king, What I don't want you to do today is to walk out of here sort of kicking yourself saying, I'm gonna do different, I'm gonna do different. No, don't do that, don't do that. 
Instead, draw near to Jesus. And say, Jesus, if I'm ever going to be a different person, if I'm ever gonna be a new man or woman, it's gotta start with the beauty of who you are melting my heart. Go to him, ask him to open his eyes so that you can see who he is and what he's done for you. Let him melt your heart so that your heart becomes his and becomes new. Go to him, go to him. That's our motivation. Let me give you one step as we get ready to close that you can begin to live out today to begin living a questionable life. Every week um, through this series, we're gonna give you a habit to put into practice that will cultivate a kingdom value in your life. You know, the way that you begin to live a new life oftentimes is to develop new habits, right? So Swiss psychiatrist, philosopher Carl Jung says that you and I are what we practice, not what we say we are, right? And you know this to be true, that the habits you and I practice ultimately shape who we become. We can say we're one thing all day long, I'm a Christian, but until the habits in our lives cultivate the kind of Christ-like living, Christianity as a title will not match up with the work of our lives. And so he says, we are what we practice, not what we say we are. And so what we want to encourage you to do is to develop habits over the course of this series and beyond that will cultivate in you a questionable kind of living, okay? And here's the first habit. We want to encourage you, every, as we have been for the last 45, 50 weeks, but we want to continue to do it. And for some of us, we'll do it for the first time starting today to encourage you to pray for one person every day. Pray for one person every day. Now this, not only what we're encouraging you to do, but notice in Colossians chapter four, Paul says three times in verses two through four, pray, pray, devote yourselves to prayer. Pray that God would open opportunities for you to share the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. Pray. Do you know what prayer does in our lives? Prayer opens our eyes to the opportunities that were in front of us all along. We just never had the spiritual sight to see them. And prayer takes off the blinders and creates an awareness in our lives to what has already and always been around us. And then notice in Colossians 4, Paul says, he says, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. So we're going to encourage you in the week ahead and every week afterwards to pray for one person. God, would you give me one person to show your love to today? And as God opens up those opportunities to make the most of every opportunity. Now, that word make the most of means to snatch up, to buy up or to buy out. That's what it means in the original language. I'm a sucker for a bargain, okay? You ask Beth. She doesn't send me with very much cash into bargain sales because I come out with useless items. Years ago, we moved to New England. I had a friend who worked for Puma. They have a Puma tent sale every year. I go in. We've got little kids, carriages, everything. So I'm just pulling stuff off the shelf because it's a good deal. We get home and she says, why'd you buy these? Buy a... Yeah, extra large shorts for you, honey. You never say, never. I should have never, but she's a small. I should have never said, honey, you'll grow into them. You never say that <laughs> to your wife, okay? Never say that, all right? Don't ever do that. Fortunately, by God's grace, I did not. Then I buy a size eight shoe for my five-year-old son. 
She's like, what are we going to do? They're baseball cleats. What are you going to do with these? He will grow into them. Six years later, he did. Sixth grade, our son is wearing these Puma cleats. Baseball, I'm like, yes. Got them for four bucks, okay? It's awesome. So Beth doesn't send me with much money into bargain places, as you can see why. And so one day I'm out on the Cape Cod, and I was out there for a wedding, and I take this run one day, and I'm going back to my hotel, and I see a garage sale. I'm like, oh, a Cape Cod garage sale. They have to have good things. I have a few bucks in my pocket because that's what Beth gives me. And so (laughs) I stop by the garage sale, and, man, it's nice stuff. And then I see my eyes behold an opportunity. And there in a box are 10 old-fashioned ice cream dishes, antique. And I snatch them up. And I say, they're mine. I think I got all 10 for six bucks. And, and um, I take them home, so proud, break them out of my trunk to show Beth. And she looks at them and says, you know, on one hand, she's really gracious. <laughs> so she's like, neat, you know. And I know when Beth says, neat that really what she's thinking something else. And so eventually it came out and she's like, what are we going to do with these? And I said, honey, these are, these are like nice ice cream dishes. She said, they got those at Target. You can get those like a buck a piece on the shelf. All right. They're selling you junk. And that's my MO. I just make the most of every opportunity to get junk. Okay. (laughs) Every opportunity. In the same way, but different. Um, Paul says around you every day are opportunities. Every day. Not priceless trinkets, but life-changing opportunities. Whereby if you will begin praying, that God will give you people to love. And if you would begin asking him to open your eyes to see, you would begin to be met with opportunities to make the most of so that when people ask you why the way you live the way you do, you would be able to give a reason for, be able to talk about the beauty of Jesus and what he's done in your life. Can you imagine what would happen if our entire community of FCC across this entire weekend and the weekends ahead would commit our lives to living questionably, prayerfully, hospitably, generously, inclusively, gladly for our king. I'll tell you what, history says that it would change the world. And I believe it can. So I want to pray for you in these moments and I want to invite you to just pray along with me this one prayer. God, would you give me one person to show your love to today as I pray? Will you pray? Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel that you drew us in when we wanted nothing to do with you. When we were enemies, you made us friends. Christ, when we were guilty, you set us free. And now you filled our hearts with such a gladness to know you, such a joy to be called your own, that Jesus, our heart is to live for you. And I pray today that by your spirit at work in us, you would motivate us to live questionable lives, to join you in praying for those around us, that you would give us people to love every day, that you would open our eyes to see the opportunities that are in front of us, before us, and we'd snatch them up, we'd snatch them up. And in doing 
so, may hearts be drawn to you. May homes be changed. May the communities be transformed. Jesus, by the mercy of, of by your mercy, by your power within us, may Council Bluffs and the towns around be very different places because your church, your people are alive, filled, called to go. And we go gladly, Jesus. And so we pray that today.